You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on the show, this is the first weekend of spring, which means the boys of summer are gearing up for the baseball season. Jim Lang with a preview of our Toronto Blue Jays. Also ahead, we may be very familiar with the Amber Alert program, but have you heard of Silver Alert? We have one woman's story and why she wants the strategy in place across the country. But we begin with the Dietitians of Canada and their campaign to unlock the potential of food. Afwaba with the recipe for healthy eating. Well, March is officially Nutrition Month, and I know it is quite difficult to get on the eating uh, well lifestyle bandwagon, but um, it's not impossible. It is doable. It just takes, um, you know what, maybe a few tips here and there to get you on the right track. So I have the perfect perfect person here with me to uh, give us some really good tips that'll get us moving. Joining me to chat today is Leah Shanehouse, who is a registered dietitian. Leah, how are you doing today? I'm excellent. Thank you for asking. I'm very excited to be here. Wonderful. And you know what? Thank you for coming along. Nutrition is is quite one of those those hard topics that to, to get into because it's kind of one of those push and pull things. So I'm glad you're here to uh, help us out. Um, first off, some tips. <laughs> I'm just going to get right into it. What are some tips to sort of maintain that healthy eating lifestyle? Because it's hard. Oh, of course it's hard. Um, it's There's so many challenges that arise from it. And just one thing that I do want to mention is the theme of Nutrition Month, and I'm glad you pointed that out, is unlock the potential of food. And it's incredible the power of food has in so many aspects of your life. So it can improve your energy levels, can elevate your mood, it can reduce uh, disease risk, makes you healthier, helps manage diseases. So there's so many things that um, food can um, affect, and it also overall makes you feel good. So really important that you do um, try to incorporate a healthier lifestyle because also having poor habits can have quite the opposing effect. First tip that I want to talk about is planning. It's absolute key. And you hear from, you know, one of the most famous quotes by Benjamin Franklin is, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. And so I mentioned this quote because almost half of Canadians claim that they're so busy. Um, you know, we're always so busy with so much going on in our lives. And so often we skip meals, we skip snacks. We're automatically geared towards um, making choices that are super convenient. And often those are very unhealthy choices. So I always suggest, you know, having a plan in place, um, figuring out exactly what your meals are going to be, what that's going to look like for the week, um, some of your uh, snacks, and I'll get into some go-to snacks in just a second. But I also mentioned planning is so important because how many times, you know, we all are guilty of doing it where you'll do your grocery shopping, you go into the kitchen, you open up the fridge, and there's nothing to eat, even though your fridge is completely full of food. So if you have a plan, you know exactly what your meals are going to look like. It takes all that guesswork out of trying to figure out, especially when you are really hungry, of what it is that you should eat. And you already know what your meal is going to look like, what your snacks are going to look like. And then having some of those go-to snacks quickly available 
So there are times, you know, in the morning, usually around that 10 o'clock, you know, you're in the, you're in the office at 8.30, lunch isn't until about 1. You're a little bit hungry and you want something to eat. Or also that 3 o'clock in the afternoon where you feel really sluggish, you know, you're not going to be home for several hours, you're not going to have dinner, and you need something to have that energy to get going, um, you know, get your brain more, um, functioning so you can concentrate better. So it's really important to have a few go-to snacks. And the keys that you, uh, that you want to remember is having a carb choice with a protein choice. Because the carbs, what they do is they give your body glucose. They give them that go-to energy. And your brain utilizes the glucose so it can function a lot better and you can concentrate better. But you want to match it up with a protein or a fat choice because what happens is when you are consuming a carb, your body digests it very quickly. It'll give you that quick burst of energy but it, um, you'll end up with, uh, so it's a spike of energy, but then you'll end up crashing very shortly afterwards. So you want to be able to balance that out, and by pairing a carb with a protein or a fat choice, what it does is it slows down the digestion, it slows down that release of those blood sugars, so that you have a steady release of energy over a longer period of time, and that will help give you that energy to hold you over until the next time you're going to be having a meal. So just some ideas of go-to snacks are things like having uh, Greek yogurt with some berries, crackers and cheese, um, apple slices with almond butter, veggie sticks, so like carrots, cut up peppers with some hummus sticks. And then some other great options also are having things that have a sh um, steady shelf life so that you can keep them in your desk, in your purse, in your car when you just need something to grab and go. And those are things like having dried fruit, so like raisins with nuts, so some sort of a trail mix, or dried soy nuts and some popcorn. So those are very easy things that you can keep to have whenever you might need that energy boost. You see, when you explain it that way, <laughs> I actually feel like I can do it now because they always say snacks and then I'm sorry, I go for the Oreo cookies. I don't go for the crackers and cheese. But when you explain it with the with the carbs and the, and the protein or a, a fat product so that it sort of maintains that your metabolism going so that it doesn't shoot up and then make you drop down in five minutes, that makes sense. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's also one of the important things is when you understand why you're eating um, some of the foods and, you know, having the proportion of the different macronutrients or the protein, the carbs, and the fats, it does also, when, thing, when you understand things, it makes things more clear and you're more likely to also adopt those habits. Perfect. Okay, so then what then, <laughs> I think I might have already started touching on it with the Oreo cookies, <laughs> what then are the biggest hurdles then with eating or maintaining a healthy eating lifestyle? Um, so, again, like what you're saying with the Oreo cookies, I think a lot of people are very uh, guilty of doing something because people like things that are convenient. So one of the biggest hurdles is time. You know, we're always encouraging you to cook because much healthier options when you are taking whole products and you're actually preparing them. But it takes a lot of time to do the planning, the shopping, the cooking. And, you know, when I go back to one of those tips is, is planning is when you don't have that plan and you're very hungry, you want something that's easy, something that's simple that you can just reach in the cupboard and eat something that's very easy to grab and go. Um, same thing in the workplaces. You know, you look at vending machines or what's in the cafeteria. So time is definitely a huge hurdle that, 
you know, I think it can be very challenging for people to be able to have that plan and be able to stick with it. Other hurdles that come with it is cost. So it's especially, you know, the new food guide and how it talks about, you know, having being more plant-based. The cost of fruits and vegetables is astronomical. So, you know, it's constantly the rising price of fresh, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. It's, uh, it's very unaffordable for a lot of people, and it's recommended that half your plate should be filled with fruits and vegetables. And half of Canadians aren't eating enough of these foods. And they are very important. They're filled with lots of vitamins, lots of minerals, antioxidants, fiber. So I think it is a cost um, issue. And then another big hurdle that I found is having skills. And I mean this in a variety of different ways, but having the skills to actually be able to cook. And I actually found this surprising because I've grown up in a household where my mom was always cooking. And so, it, um, you know, it was always encouraged that we would help out and depending on how old we were and eventually some of us would take over and we'd each do um, cook different dishes. But when I started counseling and um, started working with clients, there were some questions that came up that really, um, you know, it brought to my attention that I had clients who were even asking me, like, how do you boil vegetables? Like, how do you boil broccoli? How do you know when it's done? So a lot of these skills are lost because we no longer have it in our curriculum. Like, there's no home ec. So it's not, that's not learned. And you also have the two-parent household or when we have, like, the either two-parent or one-person households where a lot of times they're at work, they're not... Um, they're not preparing foods. So there's a lot of you know, eating out. And so a lot of those skills that used to be passed on from the parents to the kids, and that seems to be lost a lot. So it's not having those skills um, to actually be able to prepare the food. And so those three things that or the three main hurdles that you just mentioned, I think you've hit the nail on the head for each and every single one of them. I'm going to um, try and push one of them more, uh, which is cost, what you mentioned. And it's you're right. Mm-hmm. Eating healthy can be very expensive. So then do you have any sort of practical economical uh, tips that can be either for those who are um, single or those who have a full household? How can they bring those costs down while trying to promote healthy eating? So I'm going to touch on a few different options. So, first of all, looking at your weekly flyers is a great way to get started. So, again, when you're planning what your meals are going to look like for the week, see what's on special for that week. Um, so, especially, like, with fruits and vegetables, you want to choose uh, things that are in season, that are on special that week. And especially also, sometimes you'll find that when you go into the grocery stores, um, you'll have some fruits and vegetables that are on the 50% off rack because they just want to get rid of them. They might have an abundance of different um, fruits and vegetables that for whatever reason they got too many in stock and that they want, they put them on special because they need to get rid of their stock. Um, So that is one suggestion. So plan your meals around what's in season, what's on special. Um, Using those plant-based proteins, so things like legumes, lentils, a lot of those are more economical, so they're cheaper to purchase, and they have so many great nutrients in them. They're high in fiber, they have iron in them, they're great protein source. Whether you want to use them as a base of your protein or sometimes even mixing it up. So if you're having, let's say, a chili, 
you can use some ground beef or ground chicken, whatever you choose as your, uh, like, one protein choice. And then you can thin that out and add some beans, some lentils or something in that to still have your protein, but you're not using as much meat, so that can make it more economical. Even, like, the beans or, like, things like canned tuna, canned salmon, nuts. So those kinds of things, you can buy them in greater quantities and then portion them out as you either use them or um, something that I suggest is, like, let's say you're going to have nuts as your snack. If you buy a much greater bag, portion it right away when you come home. So this way you can adhere to portion sizes because one of the greatest challenges also is you don't want to be eating out of the package because, you know, you want to pay attention to your portion sizes. So portion things out, but generally per serving size, when you do buy things in bulk, they tend to be a lot cheaper. So that's also a great option to help keep costs lower. Perfect. And so where can listeners then go for more information? If they want to contact you and they need uh, some, some help, if they have questions about sort of maintaining a healthy lifestyle, where can they go? Um, okay, so the best way to reach me is to follow me on my Instagram account. So at lshanerd20. So L-S-H-I-N-R-D-20. Or you can contact me by email, leahshanehouse at gmail.com. L-E-A-H-S-H-A-I-N-H-O-U-S-E at gmail.com. Perfect. All right. And uh, Leah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me on this. And you know what? Definitely schooling me. I feel a bit guilty now going for the Oreo cookies. <laughs> Maybe I'll go for some <laughs> for some crackers instead. So I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. If you have a senior in your life or perhaps in your neighborhood, this next story could help you help them. Faryar Faroudi is the owner of the Home Instead Senior Care Franchise serving York Region. Faryar, thank you for joining us. What a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Before you tell us about your company, can you give us some information about what is sensory loss in seniors? Why are they at risk and what are those contributing factors? I'm happy to do so. As a home instead senior care, we believe that sensory loss among seniors can often bring increased risk of isolation, depression, and in many instances, uh, increased risk of harm through injuries, personal injuries, things of that nature. Uh, and some, in most of the cases, diminished senses are commonly brushed off as just being minor annoyances. Uh, but we do believe that if these are, uh, loss in sensations are left undetected and perhaps even untreated, they can diminish overall quality of life and even contribute to things such as social isolation. So if you, uh, if you are looking after mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, family, loved one, and you start noticing that certain sensory skills are starting to diminish, whether it be with hearing, sight, touch, taste and smell, it's probably best to start acting now than uh, sooner than later. And so what can Home Instead Senior Care do? How does it help? Well, well, 
Homestead Senior Care, we are a professional caregiving organization. Uh, so we have fantastic caregivers who are very skilled and educated to be able to provide the right amount of support for, for their clients. No two seniors are going to be alike. Everyone is going to have different capabilities, whether it be from their physical capabilities to their cognitive capabilities and certainly with their senses. Our Homestead Senior Care caregivers, they go through a comprehensive training so that they can better understand what sensory loss looks like in the elderly population and better appreciate what they're going through so that we can actually deliver the right care for them. And what does that care include? It can really vary, and everyone's mm-hmm. going to have different requirements. So it can be anywhere from just simple companionship, reading newspapers, going for walks, even just doing light exercises, to even help around the home, changing the bed linens, doing the laundry, maybe meal preparation, breakfast for today, but preparing lunch in advance when the, you know when the caregiver's not there, and perhaps even just even helping out with things such as uh, bathing, showering, uh, dressing things of that nature. Again, no two seniors are going to have the exact same requirements. So for us, we really do believe in having personalized uh, care for that individual and building a care plan that's specific for them and specific for the needs that they have. So about that care plan then, how do you personalize it? How do you assess the senior and perhaps the family around them as well? And that's a very good point. The worst thing we can do is not have a meeting with them. We call it a care consultation. It is so important for us to be able to meet with that individual and, quite frankly, any family member that's part of the decision-making process. In that meeting, it really allows us to get into the nitty-gritty. You know, on a day-to-day basis when that caregiver comes by, what are, what are those core tasks and core activities you want that caregiver's help with? But Beyond that, beyond just building what that plan looks like for them, when we're there face-to-face, we get a better sense of who that individual is so that we can actually match them up with somebody who we think is going to be a good connection. It's so easy just to say, just to assign anybody willy-nilly and send them off to a home. But for us to succeed and to be able to support these individuals and uh, really exceed their expectations, we want to make sure that match is a good one. So, for example, if we know that individual is perhaps a little quiet and introverted, from a, from a basic perspective, we're not going to put a caregiver in there that's, you know, super energetic and maybe, you know, um, uh, just a chatterbox perhaps. Or we have some clients that even, they have a background in music. They used to be musicians back in the day. So wouldn't it be great if the caregiver that we match them with also had some sort of musical talent and they can make that connection together? And that would be fantastic. And how long does that assessment process take? How long is it to find someone that's best suited for that particular senior? That's a good question. The assessment itself typically doesn't take too long. It's anywhere between 45 minutes to 60 minutes. Uh, But depending on the complexities, it can certainly be even longer than that. Uh, Once we actually have that uh, understanding as to what the skill set is needed as well as the personality, we typically can get started within two to three days. On our end, though, it's quite important that, you know, if we are going to be very honest with ourselves and with our with our family members and clients. If we don't feel that we have the exact right fit, uh, we're going to let them know, hey, listen, we're going to just postpone this for another day just to make sure we get that right caregiver in there. It, it doesn't happen often, but, you know, we always want to be true to ourselves and true 
to them so that they are getting the right services that they're, that they're looking for. Nefario, you mentioned that this is a personalized care plan. You know, uh, it, is there, you know, a certain day of the week uh, that uh, people would be available to help someone out, uh, help a senior out? Is it, you know, on Monday to Friday only? Are weekends a possibility? Often seniors need support overnight. Is that a possibility as well? All of the above. Okay. Everyone has a different need. So some, some uh, older adults just need somebody to drop in maybe two or three times a week help with grocery shopping, prepare some meals in advance, maybe change the bed linens, do the, do the laundry. Uh, others need more regular care. Perhaps uh, they're having incontinence issues. Perhaps they need support with bathing as well. Um, but they're, they're, for the most part, they're good to uh, live independently overnight on their own. And to your point, though, some, some older adults really do need not just overnight care, but perhaps around-the-clock care. In situations like that, we are looking more of a critical uh, type of support. Uh, these individuals uh, medically can be unstable and they do need uh, more support uh, throughout the day, not just somebody dropping in uh, every now and then. So can your caregivers provide uh, help and support to those who have declining physical health then? Absolutely, and that's really that's really their, the primary part of their role. Uh, we recognize as we age, so much about us changes. Uh, the most obvious one that we always think about is our skin. Uh, we get wrinkles over time, but what we typically don't consider is everything else that goes into the mechanics of our body. So our musculoskeletal system will certainly weaken over time, which makes it difficult for us to do basic tasks such as getting groceries and lifting those grocery bags or even lifting a, um, a basket of wet uh, a wet laundry as an example. So certainly those caregivers, their job is to be able to help with those tasks throughout the day and those instrumental activities of daily living so that that individual who's unable to do it, they can still continue uh, to live at home independently. Now, those caregivers can also help with activities such as light exercises. So going for walks up and down the street, maybe even just doing some light exercises in the home. Anything we can do to help promote a healthy lifestyle is so very important to us. Now, I understand that Home Instead Senior Care is also offering workshops to help family caregivers better recognize the signs of sensory loss. Where can our listeners get more information about their workshops and about your organization? Well, you encourage your listeners uh, to c- contact us either by phone or by visiting our website. Uh, so certainly they can call 905-597-4757 for more information. Or if, they, if they're just more comfortable by browsing uh, the World Wide Web, they can visit our website at www.homeinstead.com. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. It was in 1996 when the Amber Alert began in the United States. Since then, countries all over the world, including Canada, have adopted the system to alert the public about missing and abducted children. Now a group right here at home wants to introduce the Silver Alert system. Here's the 411. We hear frequently about the Amber Alert, but we don't hear much about the Silver Alert. Now joining me to let us know what the Silver Alert is all about is the founder, Sophia Agilinidis. Sophia, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I cannot complain. I'm doing well, thank you. Um, Now let's help the listeners. What is Silver Alert Canada? Silver Alert Canada is an organization that is trying to advocate to have a silver alert program all across Canada. Uh, We are uh, 
it's it's about finding seniors who go missing due to Alzheimer's or a form of dementia. And um, the good news is, is that there are two provinces in Canada, Alberta and Manitoba, that have amended their uh, Missing Persons Act to include silver alerts. So we're, we're heading in the right direction. And uh, silver alert is much like an amber alert, but it's a public notification system speci- specifically for seniors. So right now, because we don't have one here in Ontario, what Silver Alert Canada has been trying to do, and we've been working with, we've been working with organizations, seniors organizations with the Alzheimer's Society, and what we're trying to do is get, get the federal government to approve a national Silver Alert system so that when a senior goes missing, the police would initiate a Silver Alert, and they would have a certain number of criteria, because criteria for Ontario may be different for criteria in Alberta or criteria in the north. So it would all depend on the on the place where that senior is living. And right now in Ontario, we don't have that, and we're hoping that the federal government will be helping us initiate a program like this. So then why hasn't it been widely adopted across the country? Well, that's such a great question, and uh, I can't answer that. All I can tell you is that since 2008, I've been advocating for Silver Alert. I can also tell you that the Senate of Canada, in May of, the, of last year, they unanimously supported uh, this motion of having a national Silver Alert. So when you get all the senators of Canada agreeing on something, you know that it has legs to stand on. And most of the silver alerts that are available now, uh, they are all in the U.S. There's 36 states that have silver alert programs. Some of them, in fact, even have a broader criteria. So it really is dependent on the, on, on the place where you're located and what criteria would be available. And that would be something that the police would come up with. Okay, and so you are quite passionate about this strategy. Can you share your personal story then? Yeah, I can tell you about my grandmother. My grandmother, uh, Sophia Blagakis, she was, uh, uh, in fact, a farmer. She lived in uh, Greece, a small village called Atisu. Uh, when my grandfather died, she came to live with uh, my mom, and she got Alzheimer's in 1999, and we uh, lost her. She She walked out. Uh, she walked out. She went missing. Um, we were lucky. My parents lived in Welland, Ontario at the time, and Welland is such a great community. Uh, I, I felt like everyone in Welland was looking for her. But we're one of the one of the families that ended up finding my grandmother. She she ended up uh, she fell in a ditch, and it was night, and it was cold, and I don't really think she would have survived the evening. But we were lucky, and there are families that are lucky, but there are families that are not, and that's why having as many eyes looking for that person who's missing. I, I really think it's such a good idea and something that I'm hoping that we will be able to adopt. And I can only imagine as to what you were going through at that time. And, and even now with maybe someone who has a family member or who knows someone who is suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's, maybe they, don't, they haven't been diagnosed yet, but they're, they're not sure and they think that they, something might be coming along. What then are the signs that one should look out for? You know, that is such an excellent question. And when I read the budget yesterday, the federal budget, you know, some of these statistics are alarming. Like two-thirds of people who have dementia are women. There's over 400,000 seniors who have Alzheimer's. There's uh, nine seniors who are diagnosed with dementia every hour. 
I think the best way to answer that question is that there needs to, you need to go to your doctor and there needs to be some testing done. But in the meantime, if you feel that your, your loved one may have Alzheimer's or dementia, there are locating devices and they're all very, they're very good. And I would highly recommend that uh, people look into prevention programs on how you don't wander or how you, you know, how you can make sure you find uh, a senior who does go missing. There are prevention programs, and we should really look into them. Silver Alert is really the last possible uh, thing that we can do, and uh, I'm really hoping that uh, the government will help us pass a legislation like that. What can residents then also do to help prevent someone from wandering away? And if maybe they do find somebody that's wandering away, uh, away and they think that it might be somebody who has dementia or Alzheimer's, um, do they approach them immediately? Should they take a step back and just call 911? What do they do? I think most of those situations, it depends on a case-to-case uh, situation. But what I would do is if you notice that someone looks confused, they, they are disoriented, they don't know where they're going, I would approach them very calmly. Don't scare them. Just approach them calmly, uh, ask them questions, see if, you can, if they are in the right direction, but help them but be as calm as possible. And then I would definitely call the police because the likelihood is that their family would have been calling the police. So that's probably the best case scenario. Okay. And then um, just tra- backtracking a bit on my previous question, if somebody has a family member or knows someone that has um, dementia or Alzheimer's, what can they do? What sort of uh, measures can they put in place to help prevent someone from actually wandering away? I think there are a lot of different prevention pro- programs. I think the probably the number one recommendation that I would make is to contact your local Alzheimer's Society. They have so much information, a lot of educational material. They have videos, and they have some of the most outstanding volunteers that I've ever seen. So I would have to say that the best place to start to get as much information as you can is to contact your local Alzheimer's uh, Association. All right. And then where can listeners get more information about Silver Alert Canada? More information about Silver Alert Canada is on our website, which is silveralertcanada.ca. There's a history uh, of Silver Alert in Canada, some information about the U.S. program, some information about our petition. And also, if you'd like to share a story, uh, we would love to hear from you. And again, it really is is a um, community-driven program, and I'm really hoping to get as many people uh, interested in it as possible. Sophia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, and I hope one day soon the Silver Alert will be implemented nationwide. Oh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including how to avoid insurance fraud. Christy Laverty with the story. In a recent joint investigation conducted by Desjardins Insurance and Aviva Canada, the companies were looking into allegations of fraudulent activity by an Ontario man not licensed to sell auto insurance. The OPP were also investigating after a driver in Port Credit was pulled over. Police say the driver's insurance policy was invalid and his pink slips were fraudulent. The two investigations centered around the same man, 38-year-old Sharif Ali of North York. Police say Ali was selling insurance coverage without a 
license and allegedly supplied documentation of fake auto insurance policies for cash. Police have charged Shri Ali with several charges, including two counts of fraud. Joining me now to talk more about auto insurance fraud is Doug Dunstan, fraud investigator with Aviva Canada. In this case, uh, uh, we're basically trying to raise awareness for the issue of unlicensed individuals selling car insurance. And that's a, that's a Canada-wide problem. It's just not a Ontario problem. This is a Canada-wide problem. So in, in this case, when you talk about that kind of fraud, people think that they have purchased coverage with somebody who they believe is licensed to sell insurance? Is that kind of what we're talking about here, that maybe people don't actually know that they don't have coverage? Yes, that's that's what we're talking about here. So a, an unlicensed intermediary is what we call them. Um, we have intermediaries, uh, brokers uh, basically are intermediaries, and, and they're licensed to sell insurance for insurance companies. And then uh, we have what we call unlicensed intermediaries, which is what uh, Mr. Ali was in, in the situation we were dealing with. And uh, he basically uh, is not licensed to sell any insurance whatsoever. And uh, he would sell, um, sometimes he would sell insurance where he actually had uh, uh, purchased uh, policies through insurance companies for the insured people. Or in certain certain situations, he would uh, obtain fraudulent pink slips and fraudulent confirmation insurance documents to say that they were insured when they weren't. You know, what sort of comes to mind while we're talking about this is I wonder how much, you know, there is this buyer beware part of it. But, you know, in some cases, it sounds like maybe someone is looking to save a little on coverage and looking for a deal and end up finding themselves in a situation where they are dealing with somebody who um, is not providing legitimate insurance. Yes, well, that's usually what the situation is. So actually, there's two situations. Um, one situation is that someone's looking for a deal. So they, they're looking for the cheapest insurance they can possibly get. So they contact these people. The other situation is that someone's looking for uh, fraudulent insurance. They don't want to pay for insurance. They want to pay for a fake uh, pink slip or a fake confirmation of insurance. So they, they have a piece of paper when they get stopped by the police on the road that says, I have insurance with this company, even though there's no policy there. So there are people out there that are seeking those documents, and then there's the people that are are being taken advantage of by these uh, unlicensed intermediaries and uh, and purchasing insurance through them or or the lack of insurance depending on the situation through them. But they end up uh, these people end up paying a lot more money going through this licensed unlicensed intermediary. The reason being is in our case our uh, our fellow was uh, charging $500 fee uh, to get insurance. So on top of whatever the insured would pay for insurance, they're also paying a $500 fee to the unlicensed intermediary, and they're not gaining anything. Now, the other thing that the unlicensed intermediary will do in certain circumstances is try to uh, reduce the amount of the premium. And the only way they can do that is uh, there's only certain ways you can reduce premium, and sometimes it's just location of where you live mm-hmm. by your by your postal code, basically. So if you live in <clears throat> Toronto or you li- live in uh, Markham, um, your rates are going to be high. Mm-hmm. And if you live uh, in Niagara Falls or you live in Ottawa, your rates are going to be lower. 
And so uh, a licensed intermediary will quite often, and in our case, this did happen um, when we did our undercover, he, he, he will or she will suggest that um, you change your address with the Ministry mm-hmm. of Transportation to an address that might be a friend's address or a, a relative's address in another location that has a, a lower rate. So one of the things that, that sort of comes to my mind is, you know, maybe people thinking, so what? You know, there's this happening. You know, I'm a legitimate auto insurance you know, I have coverage and it's legitimate. There are impacts to everyone else out there who has insurance policies, correct? There, Yes, definitely, because <clears throat> all of this affects the way uh, insurance is paid out through through uh, Ontario and Canada, uh, Canada-wide. So this affects everybody's policy. This affects everybody's premium. Um, anytime there's fraud committed against insurance companies, uh, whether it's Aviva or any other insurance company in Canada, it affects the rates for everybody. It, it's important for all insurance companies to join together in this fight against fraud. So the industry is working together to warn consumers that this type of stuff is happening and it's time for meaningful action against individuals illegally selling insurance. And uh, it, 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 the kind of activity that it does is a problem for uh, with having uninsured drivers on our roads places you and me and everybody else in a precarious position because uh, if, if we're struck by someone who doesn't uh, have insurance, then uh, who's paying that bill? Well, your insurance company is going to pay that bill, not, not the other guy's insurance. And, you know, going sort of back to the consequences, if you are somebody who ends up having fake insurance and you ignorant saying, well, I didn't know, that doesn't absolve you from the consequences of not being properly insured. So maybe talk to us about those consequences of not having insurance. Uh, it's a requirement of the law that you're insured. Uh, if you're not, number one, you can be fined. Under, in Ontario, um, uh, the fines can range from 5000 to $25,000 for having no insurance. That, that's just one facet of it. The second facet is that if you end up being in a, in a collision with somebody, whether you're at fault or you're not at fault, but the fact of the matter is you're not covered. So you don't, ha- you don't have any expectation of getting uh, coverage for anything you do. So if you've hit another person or you've hit uh, another vehicle, then uh, you're going to be responsible for those costs. And they could be astronomical. You could, uh, you could injure someone so that they can never walk again. And ha- who's going to cover that? Well, they're going to be going after you and not after any insurance company because there is no insurance company. And maybe as we sort of wrap things up, for anyone who comes across somebody who appears to be fraudulent or they are concerned about some of the things um, that are cropping up when they're talking to a particular individual about insurance, what can they do? Well, if they're if they're concerned about someone that's maybe selling insurance that shouldn't be selling insurance, they can contact the police and let them know. If uh, uh, they want to find out about uh, how to determine uh, or how to fight this type of fraud, uh, uh, they can go to probably any insurance company's uh, websites, but in our case it would be aviva.ca, and uh, obtain that information on how to fight fraud. Uh, All they have to do is go to the fight fraud section of each uh, insurance company. I'm sure there's um, abundance of information there for people. Um, we estimate that uh, it's somewhere in the range of $2 billion a year. That's a lot of money. And you've got to figure, if there's fraud of $2 billion a year, who's paying that? It's every 
person who is actually have legal insurance and is paying for, through their premiums for that. It's, it's a huge problem, uh, something that we'd like to reduce and uh, obviously we'll never ever get rid of everything. If you're going to deal with an insurance company, you deal with the insurance company directly or you deal with a broker, a licensed broker. And just ensure they're licensed. Uh, make sure you're not dealing with someone coming out of the back of his car or, or uh, just on, on the phone or whatever it could possibly be uh, or just over the internet. You want to make sure that uh, if you're dealing with someone on the internet that they're actually a licensed broker like Sonnet is uh, just a, as an example. Right. And, and you know, it's sort of one of those situations where you want to say buyer beware, but we we are responsible for getting that information. And there's no shortage of resources. As you've mentioned, there are a number of uh, places people can go. Each insurance company has resources, particularly online. You don't even need to be a customer of that particular insurance company. For example, you're from Aviva, but there's all sorts of resources for people to educate themselves about um, insurance, who is a legitimate licensed broker, how you obtain proper insurance. Um, so there really is no excuse for not informing yourself. Uh, no, I guess the only uh, excuse some people may have is because of language barriers if they uh, happen to be new to the country. Uh, a lot of these guys perpetrate their their uh, their business uh, with people by going through uh, different language newspapers, um, and they'll put advertisements in there. And these people may not even speak any English whatsoever or very limited English. And so they, they think that these people are on the up and up. Um, so, uh, I mean, obviously there has to be some sort of media presence in all those areas as well that where we, uh, where we, um, insurance companies or where the government, provincial governments come forward and, and av- actually advertise in these newspapers and, and to warn people about these type of individuals because in, uh, it, this is one of the ways they per- perpetrate their crimes. That was Doug Dunstan, a fraud investigator with Aviva Canada. For more information on how to find out if you're dealing with a licensed broker or an agent, you can check out the Financial Services Commission of Ontario website at fsco.gov.on.ca or the Registered Insurance Brokers of Ontario website at ribo.com for a list of all licensed brokers and agents. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. We'll toss it over to Jim Lang next in a preview of the Jays' season. Not often do you get to talk to someone who spent 16 years in the big leagues from 95 to 2010. Greg Zahn was one of the most dependable catchers and leaders that a baseball team could have, and he joined us today on The Feed. Greg, how are you, my friend? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Good to hear from you. Well, it's good to hear from you. Um, you know, I, you played in a lot of different teams in your long career in the major leagues, Greg. A, a World Series winner in 97, some borderline good teams with the Blue Jays, some bad teams. Where do you rank this 2019 Blue Jays team? As uh, What can fans expect from them this year? I wouldn't expect a whole lot from them. I mean, but that's paper. That's why you play the games. Um you know, it's one of those deals where, you know, if everything goes right for the Blue Jays, they might be competitive in the American League East. But on paper, I got them finishing dead last. And I know that doesn't, you know, sound real good to Blue Jays fans, but it is what it is. You got still got a couple of quality starting pitchers. You still got a couple of quality bats in the lineup. They're going to be competitive. But when you look at what the Yankees have done over the last couple of years, the player development, 
Boston Red Sox with their, you know, killer bees, their player development. You look at the Cleveland Indians um, around the league, the, the Houston Astros certainly. Uh, it's just going to be a tough, tough road in the American League for a team that really doesn't have um, a complete 25-man roster. Can a guy like Marcus Stroman become the ace of the staff like other teams have? I'm sure if you ask him, he'll tell you he can. <laughs> um, but, you know, certainly the kid's talented beyond beyond belief. It's just a matter of putting it together. You know, my, my, my concern with him is, is you know, downhill playing. I hate to say it. I've always said it. It's just tough when you're not when you're not above six foot uh, to get that downhill play. You can't make the same mistakes in the strike zone that other pitchers can't. So when, you know, for instance, Darren Sanchez, six foot four, when he makes a mistake in the middle of the zone, it's, you know, there's a chance it might, might come back to him. Um, when Marcus does, very rarely do they, do they not get hit hard. Um, his biggest thing is going to be command. If he's able to command, he's going to be dynamite. He's got great stuff. Uh, obviously, we know what a competitor is. We know what kind of fire the kid has in his belly. Um, and I know, he'll, you know, he'll, he'll probably be hating on me later in social media for, you know, picking on a tight. But if anybody has the, uh, the street cred uh, to pick on a shorter player, it would be me. Remember, I wasn't exactly the biggest guy until the end of my career. That's right. Speaking with Greg Zahn from gregzahn.com. Follow on Instagram at Greg Zahn, of course, with the Greg Zahn Baseball Academy. More of that in a second. But you caught some great pitchers over your career, and you also caught some pitchers who are up and coming and learning their craft. How important is it going to be to have quality catching from the Blue Jays this year to help some of these pitchers learn what it takes to pitch and win in the big leagues? Well, you know, things have changed a lot, Jim. It's... uh you know, a lot of guys are heavily relying on scouting reports and, and you know, a lot more heavily relying on the breaking ball these days. And I had kids at the end of my career come up first day in the big leagues and start shaking off a 14-, 15-year veteran. And just who knows what they're what they're paying attention to. Who knows what's important. Uh, back in the old days, yeah, you would, you would expect um, a learned catcher, whether he was a, a young guy wise beyond his years or a guy who's, you know, been through the wars, to be able to guide you through a ball game. I used to tell my young guys, listen, you work on being able to command your stuff, and I'll put you in a good position. We'll put you in a position to win and succeed. Just trust what we're talking about. Trust the, trust the process. Trust the game plan. We'll make adjustments on the fly. But it all is predicated on your ability to command your fastball and get the ball in the lanes where the hitters are weak. If they can do that, it doesn't really matter how uh, old the catcher is, how much experience he is. Um, but I find that pitchers in today's game rely less on their catchers than they ever have. It's, it, I guess they feel like, well, it's my, my ERA, it's my career. Um, and if the agents are you know, saying what I think they're saying, they're, they're probably telling their pitchers, you know, throw what your strength, stay with your strengths and throw what you feel, feel good about versus letting the team or the catcher guide you into a place where you're uncomfortable. I always wanted to ask you this. How long did it take, Greg, for you to go from the Wausau Timbers when you are broken in, in low-level minor league ball to you made the big leagues? <laughs> How long did it take me to get there? Yeah. To, for oh, the... five, five, let's see. Five, let's see. I played all of 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, and part of 95 to get to the big leagues. So five and a half seasons. So you five really put games. your time in. Yeah, and, and and you know the other thing about it is, I'm just, I, and I assume you're you're trying to connect the dots between game calling and experience. But you know, I grew up in an era where I was calling my own game in Little League, all the way up. When hmm. I got to the Orioles to uh, basically keep it warm for Matt Weeders, I was told that his his first professional game was the first game he ever called by himself. 
So they, these guys are not being raised to call their own ball game. And, and you also got to remember, I, my, my dinner table conversations were with guys like my uncle Rick who caught 24 years in the big leagues. So I had a decided advantage when it came to game calling and reading bets, um, you know, over the guys my age. And that was one of the things that kept me in the game through some tough times with the bat. I had to, I had to, I was, I was known as a defensive guy with a great arm before I hurt hurt myself and then I had to learn how to hit to kind of make up for my inability to throw runners out but the game calling was always there the ability to catch the ball keep it in the strike zone and and block the ball controlling the baseball was paramount uh, it, it takes time catchers need in my opinion they need a, they need a full season at every level in fact I, I would even say that about uh, every everybody in the minor leagues you just you see these guys with come up to the big leagues with like two and a half years of minor experience and they just don't they don't have a polished game they can throw it through a wall. They can hit it 500 feet, but you can't ask them to do the fundamentals because they, they don't have enough experience and enough reps to actually execute, and they're not being asked to do those things. So one of those, and one of the one of the things that I that I gripe about with regards to, to professional baseball now is there's just so much money being paid to the top level prospects. They have no choice but to get into the show early. They don't want to see a guy blow out a knee or an, or an owner collateral on the. Uh, on the A-ball diamond. They want him in the big leagues, especially when they throw 95-plus. Well, that leads me to my next question, Greg, is, is Vladimir Guerrero Jr., he is the, the star prospect in the Blue Jays organization. Is is he ready to start playing on a regular basis this year, or is fans just getting too excited and maybe give him more time? They're way too excited, in my opinion. So, And I have still have a lot of friends in the game working, scouting, front office, and the one thing that they told me is that he's not ready to play defense in the big leagues. And he's certainly not fit enough to play a full season in the big leagues without being hurt. And I bring up the soft tissue injuries, and it's not just—it's not just—it's not just Vladdy Jr. It's—it's uh, it's rampant across the game of baseball. I don't know what they're feeding these guys, or what they're not feeding these guys, or whether or not they're just not working out hard enough in the off season, or maybe they're working out wrong. But you see way more soft tissue injuries in the game of baseball now than you ever had before. And I'm a little concerned about a kid 19 who's blowing out quads or hamstrings or groins without, you know, some, some crazy slip and fall injury or uh, pulling in an oblique in spring training. I mean, you went there to, to get in shape and burn off a little, little bit of fat, but, you know, I just don't understand how, how 19 year olds are pulling muscles. I mean, he, you know, that's something that world class sprinters do at 19. And I don't really look at him and, and think of him as the, the kind of guy that people would classify as the world class sprinter body type. So, um, you know, I'm sure I'll get a lot of anger for that, but you know, the kid can hit. There's no doubt about it. He's comparatively speaking to the, the the kids that he plays against in the minor leagues last year, certainly head and shoulders above them. Does that mean he's ready to hit in the big leagues? I don't know. I look back and, and remember playing against Manny Ramirez in the minor leagues, and I recently did a uh, comparison um, statistically uh, to Vladdy Jr. And, you know, Manny's, Manny's numbers were off the charts, and this is back when there actually were some guys that could play in the minor leagues, some guys that could challenge Manny. We're talking about you know, grown men, 30, 30 years old in AAA that had been to Japan, mm-hmm. two or three, four years in the big leagues that knew how to pitch. Manny destroyed them all. You look at his numbers early on in his, in his major league career, pedestrian. So there's no guarantees that just because Vladdy Jr. is lighting up minor league pitching that he's going to come to the big leagues and set the world on fire. And you know what? To be honest with you, before the oblique injury, wasn't exactly setting the Florida League on fire. He wasn't really killing it. You, you want to look at some monster uh, spring training numbers. Take a look at uh, 
Bobachet's uh, digits a couple a couple days ago. Last time I think it was a week ago I checked. That was tearing up the best tearing up spring training. Speaking with Greg Zahn, gregzahn.com on Instagram at Greg Zahn. He runs the Greg Zahn Baseball Academy Hitting Camps Catcher's Clinic, obviously 16 years in the big leagues, private and semi-private clinics. And the reason I bring this up, Greg, is for someone who spent over 20 years playing pro baseball, do you find a real sense of satisfaction when you're working with these kids and the finer points of hitting and the craft of catching and seeing that light bulb go on and they get it? Oh, yeah. It's crazy because, you know, the the – the way people teach hitting nowadays is uh, is it's a lot different than when I was a kid. I mean, we 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 had a very downhill swing, very chop wood type of mentality, you know. And over time, vid, you know, video analysis, etc., has has really changed the way we look at hitting. And you know, me being a guy that was a switch hitter, I had to work twice as hard as everybody else um, because I had to maintain two swings. But through trial and error, over you know a 22 year career in pro ball i was able to kind of figure out what worked and what what didn't uh still more than one way to skin a cat but yeah i get a huge sense of 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 accomplishment when i see the light bulb come on you know and i'm working with kids anywhere from five to 18 um i have a kid that's five years old who i'm basically teaching how to move i'm teaching him how to move like a baseball player the proper throwing mechanics the proper way to position your hand to catch a baseball uh, and then, of course, we get on the team, we hit, and we do a bunch of different things. We, I'm teaching him how to run the bases properly already, which part of the base he's supposed to look at when he's, when he's going through the bag or rounding it. I mean, this is something that's not taught very, very readily in, in Canada, and that's, that's what we're trying to change at uh, the Greg Zahn Baseball Academy. I want to give a kid a chance to be fundamentally sound first and then teach him how to practice autonomously so that he can go and get the reps and then, of course, become a better player. And then, and then, of course, on top of that, that's where, you know, my uh, the blueprints for my new facility uh, are going to come into play. Because, as you know, the weather is not not conducive to playing 11 months in a, in a year. So I'm going to have to build uh, a facility that kids can you know stretch out in. And that's exactly what we're doing doing right now. We're we're putting together you know a nice group of people to uh, help build a monster uh, training facility. We're talking about over 170,000 square feet. Of indoor facility that will stay up year-round, uh, hopefully a, a footprint of, of championship-caliber diamonds on the property for both baseball and softball. We really want to give baseball players and softball players a chance to pursue their dreams and realistically pursue their dreams here uh, in Canada year-round. Good stuff, Greg. It's not often I get a chance to talk to someone who had two home runs off Chuck Finley and Kurt Schilling. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, uh, the, the, the Chuck Finley homers were were, were an accident. And I guess the the, the one against Schilling was uh, was an accident too. But the, nevertheless, I, I did uh, I did put a couple of names in my book that I'm pretty proud of, including Roger Clemens. <laughs> hey, it still went out of the park, Greg. I mean, who cares how you hit it? Hey, you're right. You know what? They don't describe them in the box score the next day. It just says HR. Gregzon.com for all the information for the Gregzon Baseball Academy. If you have a young boy or girl who wants to learn how to hit like a pro or catch like a pro, get a hold of Greg. Greg, a real pleasure to talk to you and get some insight on the finer points of the beautiful game of baseball. Oh, thanks, Tim. Pleasure to talk with you. Let's do it again. Will do. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. We may be kicking off spring, but pothole season is here too. As Rob on the road, well, I'm on the road all the time, and York Region, unfortunately, the winter 
has done havoc on the roads, and we got a lot of potholes. I'm here with Ejaz Osman, and he's a mechanic at Von Chrysler, and with spring season now in full force, the potholes are wreaking havoc on vehicles. Ejaz, you know, what could happen when, you, when your car hits one of these potholes? Well, when you hit a pothole, you can do a lot of damage to your car. You can bend the rim, mess up some of the fenders, bend the tie rods, and it could cut, lead to a lot of costly repairs. Well, not only cosmetic, but through your suspension. Oh, your suspension, your handling could be impacted drastically, but like the control arms being bent, your car could pull to one side of the road without you even putting any driver input. So these things are necessary to get fixed immediately because safety first. Yeah, it's a big safety concern. So tell me cost-wise, Ejaz, from the smallest problem to the largest problem. The smallest problem could be like a ball joint, which would cost about $50 for the part. But installation could take two to three hours, so that could be a couple hundred dollars in just labor. But the most expensive part could be like a control arm, which is three, $400, and then another three, $400 in just labor to install it. So we want to avoid potholes. Yeah. Now, how about receiving those parts? How long does it take to order? We could see it the next day if the warehouse has it up in Mississauga. But if they don't have it and we have to order it, it could be three to four days just to get the part in. Aside from knowing when you hit a pothole, what are some of the signs that something's going wrong? Your steering wheel could be not straight. You can feel a shake when you hit the brake pedal. Your car could start pulling to one side of the road. There's a lot of things that could happen when you hit a pothole. Ejaz, thanks for hanging out with us. Ejaz Osman, mechanic at Von Chrysler, right here in Vaughn. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.